Mark. Hello, Joe, you magnificent bastard. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. <laughs> I was saving that for a special occasion. <laughs> and this is a special occasion, yeah. It is. So my question for this week is, do you have a favorite playwright? I, I do, actually. Yes. It's a, it's a fellow who worked for uh, the CBC, CBC Radio. Our guest today might actually even know him. Uh, his name is Dave Carley. And he was a uh, story editor with uh, CBC Radio. He worked on some of my stuff. He worked on everybody's stuff. And he writes tons of plays, which I've seen, and they're fabulous. And you can see his stuff all over Ontario, Canada. He would be my favorite. How about you? I feel badly that I don't have Canadian content for this, but he really is my favorite. So I got to be honest. Tom Stoppard. Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Travesties. That guy. I love his play. Yep. Good choice. And what about our guest? Yeah, our, I thought our guest might have an answer to this question. <laughs> yeah, Saul Rubinak, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Uh, you want to know who my favorite playwright is? Well, if you have one. I mean, you might have too many that you can name. So We want to know many things, but we'll start with that. <laughs> I like, uh, I would say that my favorite playwright, I just want to make sure I pronounce this correctly, would be Edward de Vere. He was the 17th Earl of Oxford, and he wrote these wonderful plays that you may have seen, including Hamlet, King Lear, Measure for Measure, a uh, number <laughs> of plays. He's otherwise known by the Shakespeare industrial complex as an illiterate um, mer <laughs> cotton merchant by the name of William Shakespeare, who could barely sign his own name, who nobody came to his funeral, hmm. and whose children weren't taught to read and write. But um, Edward de Vere, yeah, I think his plays are wonderful. And your your people who are listening can say, what is what is he involved in? But I've done a lot of research on this. There are many people who you know doubt. Certainly, there's a lot of reasonable doubt about um, whether or not somebody called William Shakespeare wrote any of this shit. Um, a lot of reasonable <laughs> doubt. The trouble is that billions of dollars are being made, you know, on Shakespeare's name. And uh, so, whereas there are, you know, there are master's degree and PhDs that in many universities that have to do with authorship, whether or not it's a painting's authorship or a novel's authorship, and you can get a, a doctorate in this category, uh, it's considered some something not short of heresy, if not, you know, blasphemy, or you're some kind of conspiracy nut to to have a, a thought that maybe this guy didn't write this shit. But there is a preponderance of evidence uh, that certainly shows reasonable doubt. And Edward de Vere is, uh, since the beginning of the 20th century anyway, was one of the most likely candidates. So he's, yeah, my favorite playwright. <laughs> okay, so not Francis Bacon then. <laughs> well, there's a lot of uh, reasons for it. People thought it was if you really investigated this and yeah. you don't want to take up our time uh, talking about Shakespeare and whether or not he wrote this stuff. But there are other candidates, and there have been over the last 150, 200 years. But uh, Bacon, uh, there is some evidence, but very little. Right. Uh, most of it is De Vere. And if you actually look it up and you st and you look at the De Vere Society and, and you look up what it's about, you'll go, how could it not be? The most educated uh, man of his time, his family owned a theater, and and in fact, pseudonyms were common in those days, um, mm -hmm. certainly hyphenated pseudonyms. And in order to not be ostracized or at least excommunicated from British society, including <laughs> all his ancestors, you couldn't be seen to write a play for money. You could support a group of players and you could sponsor them, but you could not. It was probably a well-known fact that he 
you know, had written them as plausible deniability. But if you think about it, you know, the truth is that there were, I don't know if you're aware of this, you know, the population of London was a little less than the population of Ottawa when I was growing up there. So it was less than 200,000 people, Mm -hmm. of which maybe 200 of them, if that, maybe 250 of them could read and write. Uh, you, you're you're dealing with that particular same way, so that's interesting. You you guys can look that up and to your heart's content. So you're you're not being the least bit tongue in cheek about this. You no, this is something that you subscribe to. I subscribe to reasonable doubt. I certainly subscribe to reasonable doubt. And yeah. and over the last few years, when this thought you know occurred to me, and I read other people, including Mark Rylance, the probably the most famous of all actors doing Shakespeare today and his doubts about this and what he's written about it and other books about it. And then I went into a really interesting deep dive and spoke to many people, including some of the most prominent scholars. And then I realized, of course, it's uh, it's doubtful that Shakespeare wrote any of this stuff. And what you're dealing with is a mammoth complex of money that is hilariously incapable of accepting any reasonable doubt in this area, which is ridiculous. Of course, there's reasonable doubt. But their, you know, defensiveness speaks volumes about this. Uh, Even the most, some of the most renowned academics in this area, their defensiveness, because their reputations have been made about this. If you look at any life of Shakespeare, of course, it's filled with, we imagine or we surmise or we, what could have been, they don't know anything about this guy's life, except that he signed his name three times, badly that he had a statue of himself built in Stratford, which was originally cotton merchant, but later on in the 18th century, when he was considered to be a playwright, they changed it for pen and quill. That uh, nobody came to his funeral when everybody else, you know, huge playwrights, much less renowned than his works, you know, the entire town came out uh, for. He was unsung. And there, there's a lot of evidence uh, that it was other people, if not a group of other people, and probably more than one, because people did that kind of thing. Anyway, let's let's stop this. <laughs> Mark, no, did you expect uh, no. this answer? I am. I'm so. I so love this answer because I my my yeah. theater my degree was in my undergrad degree is in theater. So I'm I'm like I love this because Christopher Marlowe was always always kicked around as another possible candidate as well. Well, Marlowe was way yeah. too young to do this, yeah. and he died in fifteen. He died in fifteen ninety three ish, and yeah. um, probably murdered by because of his heresy and because he considered him, he actually said out loud that he was an atheist plus the fact that he was gay openly and he was he was murdered under very or killed under very suspicious yes. circumstances very unlikely that it was marlowe there 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 it's a very fascinating subject i'm really yeah, interested exactly. in it. Uh, I'm going to be doing a version of Shylock in Toronto uh, a year from now, which I can't talk too much about because it hasn't been officially announced. I'm not really doing Merchant of Venice, but it's a one-man show about Shylock. And so I've investigated who wrote that and why it was written. Edward de Vere lived in Venice. There's no record of Shakespeare ever having left England. But de Vere lived in, uh, in Venice right next to the ghetto when he was 25 years old and knew the character that it was based on, Shylock was based on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gaspar Ribeiro, who was a very, very well-known convert to Christianity after a famous trial. Probably that story never made it across to England, but certainly de Vere would have known about it, along with the fact that he was, you know, highly educated and could read Latin and and Greek and French Mm. and Hebrew. You know, they they believe it's snobbery that those of us who think that it is unlikely to have been this guy Shakespeare isn't because they, they say, well, we are snobs because we don't believe genius can come out of the common people. 
Of course, genius comes out of common people, but you can't do it without education. You can have the potential for creating this work, but unless you're educated, you're not going to get anywhere no matter what kind of potential genius you are. So it's not snobbery. Of course, most many of the people who believe this come from very humble backgrounds, these academics and actors and different Mm -hmm. quite renowned people, including Mark Twain and Orson Welles and many people in the past who doubted the veracity of um, Shakespeare having you know written this stuff, but it's a fascinating thing because we we need to talk about why does it matter? Why does it matter? You go see a play or you go see a movie. Yeah. You really need to know the background of the author, or why does it matter? If you either like it or it matters to you or not, well, it does matter. It does matter when you mm-hmm. know about the life of Mozart and you know what he went through as a child prodigy and what his father put him through. It does matter. Yeah. It matters certainly to the people who are interpreting the work in an orchestra or and as the case may be, the people who are interpreting the work as directors or actors. Or It matters. The life of, a, uh, of the artist and what they were up to matters. Does it matter, you know, when you look at, you know, poets, um, some of whom were egregiously anti-Semitic or difficult or went mad or whatever? Does it matter? Their poetry still may be extraordinary. Yes, it matters. Not so that we can cancel them or say they're not worth it, but it's important to understand what human beings have created and why they've created it as part of the human experience. And it's why there are degrees in this and why people study it. So it matters to me. I've read The Life of Edward de Vere. It it matches very much what those plays are about in terms of his life. And it's fascinating, of course, you know, I mean, all of it, all of his life is fascinating, including the eventual publishing in 1621 of most of his plays, oddly published by De Vere's daughter, who had, for some reason, had them. And, um, <laughs> there, is that and, where the folio came from? I didn't know that. Where all those folios in 1621 yeah. after yeah. his death, it, it was it was De Vere's daughter who had them oh. and published them. Uh. Probably because there was rumor that there might be a Catholic king. There wasn't, but there might have been. Mm-hmm. And if his plays were discovered, they would have been destroyed because they were so anti-Catholic, as you know. Um, yeah. And uh, are so, you know, geared away from Catholicism in order to, you know, survive. Uh, otherwise, they would have been banned by an Elizabethan court. Mm-hmm. Okay, now we need to talk about whether Harper Lee wrote To Kill a Mockingbird or uh, was it Truman Capote? Well, do you know that Harper Lee's book is, well, anyway, that's a whole other. <laughs> you wanted to know what I wanted to talk about. I yeah, what do you want to talk about? I mean, you've off to a 20, great start. Yes. Yeah. In 20, yeah. in 20, well, this is controversial. In 2020, uh, six months before the invasion by Russia, I was in Ukraine. I was offered the opportunity to play a role in a film that took, it was going to be a black and white film. It was going to be a single shot film. The whole film looks like it's a single shot. Mm. It's one day in the life of a village, a, Yiddish, a little Jewish village in 1941 in Ukraine, bordering Russia. And um, it was called, the film's called Shtetl, S-H-T-T-L. It was uh, the winner a year ago of the Rome Film Festival Audience Award. And it played at the Jewish Film Festival in Toronto last June, and New York Film Festival, Lincoln Center, and many festivals around the world. It's going to be opening in Toronto and Los Angeles and New York, I think, in February. Uh, this is what I look like in this in this uh, film. Uh, oh my god! So I play a, a Hasidic a- rabbi of this little village. Shtetl is the Yiddish word for for village. So I'm very happy about that. But it also coincided with something else that was going on in my life that I I could talk about. You asked me to talk about one of my projects. So many years ago, you know, I'm the child of Holocaust survivors. And my parents um, survived together, hidden for two and a half years by Polish farmers. 
1986, together in co-production with the CBC, I went to Poland with a small three, four-person crew. And it was still communist Poland. And we shot a documentary film, less than an hour long, called So Many Miracles. And that film is about the reunion with my parents and the Polish farmers that had hidden them 40 years earlier. And I wrote a book around that time that was published by Penguin called So Many Miracles, which was a result of almost 10 years of interviews that I'd had with my parents about their lives before, during, and after the war. And I did all that before my parents passed, my dad in 96 and my mom in 2000. And about five years ago, four or five years ago, a very good friend of mine, a playwright, Emmy Award-winning writer who I'd known for 25 years, said to me, I don't think you're done with this subject. And after cursing him for a while, <laughs> I, you know, I said, I've done this documentary film. I wrote a book. And, uh, and he said, well, you know, you've, you, you've talked about everybody but yourself. You're also your daughter. Um, you, you, talk, you know, um, there's a whole issue about when you introduce this subject of genocide and what happened to her, that side of her family, because the other side of my, my wife's family is all Celtic, Scottish, Irish. But, you, you know, to bring up genocide and what happened in the Holocaust, you and your wife decided to wait till she was 13. You introduced the subject to a classroom, at which point, right around then, you discovered that her best friend in her elementary school was the great-granddaughter of an SS captain. Wow. And so... The idea of introducing a subject like this to the school at that time, the documentary film, which is not filled with horrific stuff because it's not about concentration camp. It's about, you know, how people were very brave and saved my parents' life, these Polish Catholic farmers who were. So it was a, a way to introduce with the schools and the parents' cooperation, children to the subject because they felt that at the age of 13, children can begin to contextualize their own experience with consequences and begin to place themselves in history and begin to understand a subject as difficult as that. And I didn't want to do it at first because I didn't like the idea in those days of, so to speak, Holocaust education. Not because I didn't believe the world should know about what happened to my people in Eastern Europe, but because I felt it's possible that it could exclusivize the experience in the sense that I, I wanted to relate it to all of human experience and other holocausts, whether it was, you know, to the Métis or, or Native people or the Black experience or Armenians or mm -hmm. Rwandans or whatever the experience. So we've barely gone a, a day in life of human history without some form of genocide. So we, uh, the school agreed to do this as part of a way of inspiring the students 13, 14 years old, to investigate their own personal history and then in a week or so share that experience with the class. Well, we were knocked for a loop when we found out my daughter's best friend was the great-granddaughter of an SS officer. How are you going to do that if her mother had never told her? And how are we going to inspire her to investigate her own background? So anyway, he talked about my friend, the playwright said, you know, and you haven't really talked about your own experiences, never mind what happened with your daughter, but how it came to be that you wrote this book and how it came to be you did this documentary because he knew that it was all based on lies and deception um, of me trying to figure out a way to get back with my parents who weren't so happy about me being with a non-Jewish woman. And so I lied about there being a documentary. <laughs> I lied about there being a book. And there was no book and there was no documentary. I mean, I lied about everything. And, and it was a way for me to get together with them and have interviews. And I lied to everybody. I lied to my girlfriend about the book. I lied to everybody about it because I was embarrassed about my parents' horrific reaction, even though they weren't religious particularly. So he said, there's a great story there, very funny in retrospect, mm -hmm. and so it will relate to other people. So I started writing this play after cursing him for a while. 
And I started writing, I kind of had too many stories. I'd grown up with all these stories. Eventually it took a while, like almost three and a half, four years before I knew what it was about. I knew how to narrow it down. And I called the play All in the Telling. And I found a producer for it, uh, Corey Ross, who is uh, from Toronto, who is one of Canada's very few commercial theater producers, who most recently in the last three years is responsible for the worldwide Van Gogh immersive exhibits. And he loved the play and worked at the moment trying to raise money to put on a commercial production of this starting in Toronto sometime in the near future and then try to take it to the rest of the world. So that we are fundraising for that, for all in the telling. And that's been occupying me as well as writing and adapting it into a feature film and finding a really wonderful Canadian Mm. producer. Okay, I'm gonna gonna stop you there if I can, because I I wanna unpack some of this, because you (laughs) you kind of raced through some of that, much of which was very intriguing. Like the business about talking to your, your parents manufacturing a story about a book and a documentary. I thought there really was a book and a documentary. Yeah, it all happened. Yeah. So where where, where did the lies come in? (laughs) Well, the lies started because I couldn't get along with my parents and I was embarrassed to tell my girlfriend and my friends in the theater community that my parents' reaction was biblical about me living with a non-Jewish woman. And so I lied to my girlfriend saying that they were fine about it. And I, uh, in order to figure out a way ah. to get back to my parents and have some relationship to them, they were living in Ottawa, I was in Toronto as a young actor. I said that there was a book that people, I was starting to get known in, in television in the late seventies in, in Toronto. And I said, people are interested in me uh, writing a book about their wartime experiences. And they kind of were like, well, they're already told the story of the diary of Anne Frank. And I said, well, this is not that. And I, and I said, well, who is the publisher? And I just looked at the nearest bookshelf and said, penguin. <laughs> and oh, that's a big, that's a big publisher. What well, my parents couldn't really deny me anything, even though I was minorly and <laughs> informally excommunicated from the family. Not really, but I couldn't call without weeping and my father hanging up on me. Oh. Said they could never deny me anything when it came to my career. Um, so you were not so, exactly estranged, but you were, but there was problems. Yeah, so yeah. given the fact that I was going to make money from Penguin, and this was a big deal in my career, I was able to travel to Ottawa and start writing a book. Of course, I didn't tell my girlfriend or my friends that Penguin was publishing it because they would have seen through that as bullshit immediately. But my parents believed it. And I spent, you know, three, four, five times a year traveling to Ottawa interviewing them. Luckily, there was tape in the cassette recorder. Eventually, what I didn't know what would happen, this is all part of the play that I wrote, all dramatized, is that my girlfriend would say, and I should have seen this coming, can I read some of it? (laughs) Well, that was a fucking nightmare because now I had to fucking write the fucking thing. (laughs) So I had, and this was before computers, so I was on a typewriter to begin with. Anyway, eventually (laughs) I had a early 1983 Mac, but before that it was a typewriter and headphones and and a cassette recorder and I started typing this shit up and I realized I'd heard these stories all my life and so they went in one ear and out the other when I was with my mom and dad. I suppose underneath it I was really trying to find out in my own unconscious, subconscious way why they had this reaction to me being with a non-Jewish woman. I really wanted to get to the bottom of that somehow. Not that I knew that consciously at the time. But in any case, I couldn't really write it because it was filled with repetitions and 
and tangents, and I actually had to rewrite their voices. And because I'd been in theater all my life, I knew how to do that. And then I actually, the epiphany was that I actually wrote the thing. And my so the lies became reality. The rise became the truth, and eventually Penguin fucking published it. <laughs> that is a hell of a Babe Ruth moment. That's a called shot out of the ages, man. I'm going to have this published yeah, by so Penguin. <laughs> it's a great story and very funny, and the plays. Uh, I've had several readings of it with wonderful actors, and I've had wonderful reactions to it. It's very difficult to get a production on of it in a regular theater, although it's still possible. We're trying to find a way to do it commercially. So that's been occupying me. And in a way, I was inspired by the fact that this film I did in Ukraine called Shtetl is in Yiddish. And my dad was in Yiddish theater uh, before Hitler put oh, a stop wow. to that. And I, you know, he stopped doing all that. But I had never performed in Yiddish. And it was my first language when I was an immigrant kid in Montreal in the 50s. I spoke Yiddish and French before I spoke English because the street was a working class French Canadian street filled with that kind of patois, which was called Joao. And Yiddish and immigrants, recent immigrants from Eastern Europe. And so I spoke a kind of mixture of Yiddish and French. And then we moved to Ottawa when I was six and I started to speak English. And then ended up in a theater school when I was seven years old at the Ottawa Little Theater. And I never, kind of never left. But I had never acted in Yiddish. And, and I was given this opportunity. And it was an extraordinarily inspiring thing. And kind of, you know, done instead of for my father. And um, and I think it, it helped me write the play because I realized that, you know, my life is a storyteller. Um, journalists, historians can tell you stories about millions of people. But I know how to tell stories about very few people, in this case, my family, and I don't change any names in the piece. And I feel that my story has universal universality to it, whether, you know, parents and children. I mean, the, the, the log line of the play on the telling is it's a play for, for people who've had parents. <laughs> that's great. So, so, so Very it's, non-exclusive. It's, yeah. Yeah. So that's what it is. I think yeah. it relates to a lot of people whose parents wanted their children to go a certain way and the children tried to go another way. And there's difficulties, no matter what race, culture you come from. Can I, can uh, I ask you a few yeah. further questions about that? And Mark, you know, jump in a few because yeah, I know you yeah, probably I got just, a bunch of questions. I yeah. just, you're such a good storyteller. I'm just kind of sitting here and soaking it all in. <laughs> yeah. But okay. So what happened to the non-Jewish girlfriend? There were, in the play, I, I put them to, into one character because after a certain readings, uh, everybody said, this is very confusing. Uh, mm. So I was with one woman at first. We parted amicably before I had children or money. And uh, we're still you know, in touch with each other. And then in 1988, by that time, my parents had already accepted it. And I'd already written the book and I'd already made the documentary. 35 years ago, I met Eleanor and we're still together. She's in the other room. And our children are 28. My son's a, uh, a writer and my daughter's a political activist and an actress and um, she's 32. And so we're, we're, we've been together for a long time. My parents, it kind of all went away once they were children. So uh, yeah, that was my next question. See, yeah. you became no longer, you know, you know they, 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 I would threaten them with writing another book, you know, but, <laughs> the, but, but no, by the time there was a documentary film, my first wife and I were already splitting up, but um, they eventually had to accept it. And luckily, you know, I had had all these interviews and I did come to some understanding of why their reaction was this, you know, 
Yeah, that was my question. Yeah. The way I relate to this, and the way other people will relate to it, I mean, one of the ways to look at it, it's very funny, the play is very funny, but it also has in it, you know, great uh, traumatic events. And in many ways, it's about intergenerational trauma, which is an experience that what I told the class of 14-year-olds, I remember kind of a moment of epiphany when you see this documentary film, which is really cool and very emotional, you know, of this reunion between my parents and these, and the farmers who hid them, who did an extraordinary act of bravery. And I look at these 14-year-old faces, 13, 14-year-old faces, well, who thinks that my family history is kind of more dramatic than theirs? And, you know, 30 hands go up in the air. And I say, well, I don't think it's true that it is. I really believe, and this is part of the impetus to help inspire them to investigate their own backgrounds. I said, what I believe is that in your own family background, there is murder and suicide and saving people's lives at the last minute. There are victims and there are perpetrators. There are bystanders. There are cowards and there are heroes. And sometimes all of those things in the same day. Mm -hmm. And they are in your own family history as dramatic as any novel ever written. If you ask the right people the right questions, and before you do that, you have to want to ask the questions. Where do I come from? Why am I living in this city? How did you meet? And you begin to understand something about your family's history. And if you are lucky enough to have a grandfather still alive or an old a maiden or an aunt or an uncle or somebody who is old enough and, and still got you know the wherewithal to be able to tell you these stories, you find out that you have a common humanity with all races and cultures. There was one young girl who put up her hand after first hearing the word genocide, which had never been introduced in this group of children. And after it had been introduced, she put up her hand and said, well, we all did this after a week of the sharing stories of the family backgrounds. She said, if everybody did this, wouldn't genocide be impossible? <laughs> Which was a very innocent, naive, and moving question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I have a question because I just, I just want to know how, because I love that sense of curiosity, that, that like understanding, like being curious about other people and in this case, your own family's history. How do you, how do you think we can foster that amongst you our, know, our kids? I think it's part of a, it's education and it, it all comes down to how we raise our kids and what kind of schools we're in and whether, you know, so little money is given towards music literature. Now it's all about, much of it is about getting ahead in the world and the fear is fear-based much of public education, mm-hmm. fear-based fear of the parent, parents' fears that their children aren't going to make it or succeed in life. And uh, it's all about that. Much, much of it is about that. And I don't know how you inspire it except to bring your children to the stories, you know, to bring them to theater and have them read novels and bring them to movies that have, that are something beyond superheroes and, and have family discussions about this thing. It's of course, you have to live in a society. We have to be lucky enough to live in a society that's not in, engaged in day-to-day survival, yeah. feeding and not being killed or bombed. Or, and, and, and I think, you know, we're living in a world – there was there used to be a line in my play, which is not a little off topic of what you just asked me, 
but we're living in a very you know fractured world maybe we always have been only in our times we feel it's more fractured than any other but but we're living in a, a difficult fractured world and and i there used to be a line to play i took it out because it was a bit too on the nose and it was if you believe that your holocaust is more profound than anybody else's then it might give you a reason to drive a plane into a building mm-hmm. hmm. and i believe that telling our stories art painting sculpture music dance theater cinema allows us to express our common humanity and how we can join hands and i i think it's always been the case at the same time as there's been people who want to divide us and hate uh the otherness in others and do and worry and fear for their survival of the white race or the christian race or the jewish race or the islamic race or whatever the fear brings brings this violence you know I, i'm i'm like struck that. by how events reverberate down centuries and millennia i've been listening to the history of rome and i just got past the the section about uh, emperor hadrian and uh, and what he did in judea mm-hmm. which uh, arguably is still you know reverberating today in, in israel and uh, and i wonder about you know what's going on now will it still be reverberating 2000 years from now you know it, i hesitate to speak about current events because you can be taken out of context yep. easily and i am worried about that and i i'm going to shy away from talking about the events in israel which are very difficult and complex mm-hmm. um but what you're saying is i hope that uh, was it martin luther king who said the arc of the universe bends towards justice and i hope that that's true i hope that that it bends towards um us being brothers and sisters you know and that we recognize in each other each other mm-hmm. i i'm going to take it then to a, a little bit safer ground and you've already touched upon this the the importance of family and i know how important family is to you you said to me one time that you could never time travel past the birth of your children because that would effectively make your children go away Well, no, you could if if there was time travel. The point about that story, it's a joke. It's yeah. a trick. It's like yeah, this yeah. question. I I used to it's a game you can play with your with your friends and family. And the game goes like this. I have a magic wand. But you have to believe I have this magic wand. The game is useless if you don't believe that I have this wand. And I can send you back in time for half an hour to any time in your own life. And you can say whatever you want to yourself. and the question you ask the group at the party drunker the better is when would you go to and what would you say so inevitably it's about this is a a road i took in my life that i wish i hadn't gone on i have it's a game about regret in many ways yeah yeah and it's and it and it's a way of looking at regret and what i said to you years ago was the trick to this is if you go back before the inception of your oldest child that child won't be born because you will have changed everything because the moment of 
conception is unique. That instant, uh, the fertilization of that egg is a, is a unique moment in time. Otherwise, a different egg, different sperm, whatever. So mm-hmm. you, unless you don't want your children, you know, don't, don't, don't go further back than that. You may have regrets, but you, you really don't want to go further back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a wonderful yeah. movie about that, actually. Which one is that? It's the one with uh, Donald Gleason and um, Bill Nighy plays oh, his yeah. father. Oh, yeah, it's about time. That's and a you fantastic see it? it's, it's, it's And there's yeah. a wonderful yeah, yeah. scene, because I think that's what he chooses. He chooses to go back to talk to his father, I think just after his children have been born, but before his father passed. It's just, it's beautifully acted. It's beautifully acted. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. We, we love time travel here in this yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah, we're a big time travel. We're, we're pro time travel. <laughs> you were going to ask me about family. What were you going to? No, I guess it was just really okay. just a, a comment about uh, about what you had said to me that one time. Oh, okay. I should explain right. that uh, that we have met before. I had the great privilege of working with you uh, back in the CBC Radio Drama Department, working on uh, Barney's version. And I always wonder. I look at people's uh, Wikipedia pages. And actors that I've worked with, they never mention anything about radio drama. <laughs> <laughs> I, I noticed that too, but I got to tell you right now, I loved that that radio play because I think I had just finished reading the novel, and then I saw you guys were doing that. And wait, you heard that? I heard, I actually listened. I was riveted to the whole thing. It was a fabulous performance. Fabulous. You know, it set me on a, it set me on a, a mission back when you and I got together and talked about this because mm-hmm. I couldn't find it, and then I found the recordings which are very hard to find and then i found out about the shuttering of radio drama and what happened to that studio as you know and then i tried to get together with a group of people and realized that the problem was a union problem that nobody had ever brought the unions together to talk about this which i did do but it was impossible ultimately i realized it was a full-time job there wasn't the will i mean it'll eventually happen i mean radio drama very few people know that uh, CBC Radio Drama, the studio, was one of the best, if not the best, studio in the world mm-hmm. uh, for radio drama. I would concur. There wasn't anything like it even in London. Uh, yeah. And it was an extraordinary place in which you were one of the head technicians there. And and there was nothing like it. But because of budgetary reasons or whatever the reasons, so it disappeared and became a real estate office or whatever it became. But, <laughs> but... We are probably the only country in the world, Canada, where the population has paid for, through tax dollars, all of this television and radio for 100 years and don't have access to it. You don't have access to its archives because nobody's created the archives. Well, as you know, that's going to be created in northern Ontario in an old, I think, some kind of missile site <laughs> that they bought you know no, really underground uh, nexus for where you can get wi-fi and they're going to store all this stuff because cbc originally secretly tried to destroy these tapes to great to get escape when that was to get space all of these tapes uh, were taking up room and they tried to sell it to new york state as fuel true story it was discovered <laughs> and stopped i don't think i'd heard that that's yes yeah. absolutely true i've got the paperwork to show it and uh so they were just bureaucrats who were doing what well, sorry we needed space we were going to just we, we make some money off it all of this original material was going to be destroyed so then they became went into the process of digitizing this stuff both television and radio drama the problem is that there isn't a place for it yet and ultimately it should have free access people should have the population of the country should have free access to what they paid for 
for a hundred years. The project you were talking about is uh, is bringing all the old radio plays to light that nobody can. We've had so many great actors and so much money spent on, on all this, and uh, and like you said, nobody can. Yes, and women played a huge role in it, unsung. Many uh, certainly in the in the forties and fifties, and there are, there are great many uh, people who had their start in, I certainly had my start in radio drama in Ottawa when I was a little boy, and then did wonderful things at, uh, at CBC in Toronto that I'm very proud of. But now it's called, uh, you know, live podcasts or scripted podcasts. Mm, and fine. Yeah. They, they, they would be able to sell them everywhere if they made them. And, uh, and then it could be the basis of somebody says, you know, I want to buy the rights to it and make a movie or a TV series out of this. It's a great idea. But, but Canada is backward. In all the Western countries in the world, we are unique, embarrassingly unique, in that we do not have access to our own culture in French or English uh, about what has been created. That is not to say it's been destroyed. There are groups that are preserving it, and somebody will eventually get it together to create a website modeled maybe on the BBC's wonderful website where you can access the archive of radio plays, and it's a rolling yeah, um, itinerary of work. You can different curations, uh, curators. They bring in guest curators, famous people, famous artists to curate for that month uh, their shows, and you can access different things. And underneath, you can access who the cast was and their biographies, and you can learn about the writers and directors and the, the cast of of these shows. And it's a it's a great resource for the culture of the UK and and their and their shows. And we have a very similar rich cultural heritage of stuff. And I, I know you tried valiantly to make it happen and well, uh, you're not saying it's impossible, but it is no, a full-time no, no, job. To, yeah. There are people still doing it. I, I, okay. had to, I had to back off it because it became too difficult to organize for me, but there are people who are doing it and who are involved. There's, there are, there are, there's fundraising and they have a space for it. Uh, it's being digitized eventually once it's in one place. I mean, I, I think it'll happen. Yeah, but, it, but you are really part of that world, and and it's um, and you've written about it extensively, and you've written a book about it, which is really cool. And and I think that it'll eventually happen. I hope I hope it happens. You know, in my lifetime, that that, that people start to have access to this to this uh, material. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I, I have to ask you. You mentioned uh, me me writing about that, and of course, I, I wrote about you in that book. One of the things I, uh, I talk about is how impressed I was. And this is the flattery portion of the podcast, by the way. I, <laughs> well, I, I talk about how impressed here. I was <laughs> with your work, <laughs> which which Mark has heard on Barney's version. Because, yeah, I mean, I worked in that department for over a decade. And we had a lot of actors come through. And many of them were were top-notch and fantastic. But there was two or three that stood out. And you were definitely one of them. And I wanted to ask you, because I, I speculate in the book, you know, how you achieve that level of performance. How, how do you? You know, I, I don't approach things trying to reach a level of performance. Um, I, uh, if I did, I would be too intimidated, I think, saying, okay, I've got to be great in this, you know. Hmm. I, I think all that happened was that I, I had known Mordecai uh, Richler as a young actor doing a couple of uh, projects that were adapted from his work. And I'd read it extensively, and I knew this material. And then I was really thrilled with the fact that we weren't going to be standing around a microphone 
you know, turning pages, that we were going to spend a week, a whole week, doing the novel in a, uh, an adaptation. So it was very, I knew that it was being almost filmed because that studio, to people who don't know it, was massive. And you, if you were on a bed in the scene, you were on a bed in the scene. A microphone could follow you. If you were going up concrete steps, you went up concrete steps. If you were in a kitchen, we had a kitchen. If you were outside, yeah. we had a dead room, which means mm-hmm. that it had no echo. So really, you could record it as if you were outside. If you wanted to be in a car, you could be in a car. And so you were actually performing it as if you were shooting it. And that gave a certain life to it. And then it was like I did every other role that I've ever approached, which was I collaborated with the director, producer. Gregory J. Sinclair. Yeah. Yeah, who wonderful, um, who was really great and a great writer uh, and a great adapter of this, whose name was... Howard Wiseman, um, I believe. Howard Wiseman. And, yeah. and so I worked with them and I set certain requirements. I needed a certain setup for myself when I was doing the monologues. And I, I had, you know, I remember you, you had told me that you thought I was a bit of a prima donna at first because of... <laughs> yeah, I wasn't really. I was I afraid was really, that you would be, but you you very obviously were not. No, yeah. I just wanted to collaborate. I wanted to set up conditions for myself. It was a very difficult role that had to be done in in a week and cover an entire novel. And the guy monologue of a character is an alcoholic and has dementia as he's trying to write his memoirs. So he has trouble remembering things, and that's part of the humor of what Mordecai had written. And so I didn't set out to do anything great. I just set out to be accurate and to pay service uh, respect to the character that was written and try to inhabit it as best I knew how, which means, uh, you know, collaborating with the other artists and wonderful actors I was working with and to make sure that technically I had what I uh, needed, you know, that's all. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great climb. It's one tree at a time. It's not looking at a forest. Hmm. Yeah, so a combination of natural ability and experience, and uh, and the environment, and uh, and you really were working with uh, one of the best directors, Gregory J. Sinclair, who yeah yeah completely exploited Studio Two Twelve. And properly. I gotta say, I, I yeah. compliment you here, Joe, because that chapter of your book really describes the set so well. Like it describes that studio and what makes that studio, what made that studio so special. Uh, it's, oh, I am well still done. pissed off. Everybody yeah. at the CBC knows how pissed off I am about <laughs> them shutting down Radio Drama and uh, and shuttering that studio. Yeah, just yeah. Well, it's an egregious act. It, was it an is. Egregious yeah, act, but they couldn't afford it, uh, or at least yeah. they wouldn't afford it. Better, better than said than couldn't. Um, given the fact that it was state of the art, that people from all over the world should have gone there to study how radio drama should be done, and that we would have been world class at the time, and now. The only difference is that I would say the only technology that's changed aside from the size of microphones and and the kind of mixing units that are smaller now and maybe a bit more accurate is that you can go on location now uh, more easily than you could have then. And we we certainly did back in that day, you know, with people like Bill Lane, you know, I recorded on location with with Bill in Montreal many times. Yeah. 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 And uh, so all of that is... uh, I hope to be positive about it because, you know, people are still doing scripted work. They're calling it something else, scripted podcasts or whatever, and they're very popular. Well, I know they do that in, in L.A. Do you do any of that work? I, ha- I have done a little bit of it. I know Greg is doing that in Toronto, I think. Yes, he is. Scripted podcasts. Yeah. And mind you, we none of us have that studio to, to work in. 
I mean, it only could be done with tax money. It can't be done on a commercial level. It would have to be done that way. And also we forget, I mean, CBC radio was commercial free, which is what the television should have been. They, and still is. Yeah. Still is commercial yeah. free. Yeah. Radio is. Radio is. But not yeah. television. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. I have a question. So I've, I want to take you, I want to go way back to, as you mentioned, preparation. And I, uh, I'm a London, Ontario boy. So I want to ask you about Stratford because I know you, you spent some time there. And what, what was Stratford for you? Because obviously you love the, the Canada Shakespeare. You know, I crashed the auditions uh, when I was 20 years old. And I, uh, there was nowhere else to go. And I somehow got in. Uh, to the company, but I left very quickly. I mean, I got my kind of university education on the works of uh, Shakespeare and other Renaissance writers like Johnson and other people, and by being among those wonderful actors and directors, but I didn't get really to play any roles. I was Mm. too young. And I could see the writing on the wall for me that I wasn't built for what they were looking for. And right at that time, which was 69, when I was turning 21, um, my friends were starting these theaters in Toronto, like Theatre Pass Mirai out of Rochdale College. And, and um, you could work for 20 bucks a week. And I threw out the idea of making, you know, $100, $200 a week, which full time as an actor, to my parents' chagrin, <laughs> and went and worked with these so called hippies in this, you know, on un- <laughs> the unwashed world of alternative theater because it was the beginning so Stratford was a bump for me right okay uh, and a place and- I needed to get away from because what was really amazing about those days wasn't Stratford what was amazing about those days was the Trudeau government had uh, initiated uh, opportunities for youth grants and local initiative program grant lip grants OFY grants that allowed and began to build cultural centers in Winnipeg and in Ottawa and in different cities across country. And we campaigned for those things to be built only if they were also going to commission Canadian writers. But there were no English Canadian writers, Mm -hmm. almost none. They were an anomaly. And so it was my generation that was first writing plays in English and uh, about people who were living in those cities because our theater was for the most part imported from England and the United States. Yeah. And so what made a huge difference in my life was that occurrence. And partly that was to an unsung extent influenced by the Vietnam war, because we ended up in Halifax, Winnipeg, Toronto, you know, Vancouver with uh, draft dodgers, American draft dodgers and American draft deserters, many of whom, entered into our culture and influenced us in many areas of life, including the law and in social medicine, many other many areas, but certainly in the area of theater and in the arts, where I knew a lot of people who convinced us not to be good citizens and showed us how we can blackmail our own government along nationalistic, you know, calling ourselves <laughs> nationalists and, great. <laughs> and, and, and convince them to get, give us money to, to create our own work because you really couldn't do it. There wasn't a place, very, very few places that were doing original Canadian work. They were ahead of us in French Canada. Yeah. By almost a decade, not much more than a decade for original Canadian, uh, French Canadian work, but they were ahead of us. But in English Canada, we didn't have it until the beginning of the 70s, you know, and then 
And then it all, just when I was starting to be in my 20s, very luckily, this was where my life began. And I don't think it would have been the same if I somehow stayed in Stratford. Not, not I don't think. I know it wouldn't have been the same. Mm-hmm. I would have had a different life. Stratford had its own value and its own beauty and its own cultural significance. But it wasn't for me. Uh, my my life went in this other area because of what was happening yeah. in the theater communities. And it's where I first learned uh, the value of being part of a creative community. But Theater Pass Mariah is so influential in Canadian theater. I mean, that must yeah, have been it so exciting. But it must have been so exciting to be there. Uh, or I'm mean, just projecting. It was, it was audience of 10 people. You know, <laughs> okay. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, hardly getting any. Sometimes there would be a show that would that would make a difference and there was some great directors and occasionally an amazing show. And sometimes they're very experimental, you know, run by Jim Gerard first and then by Martin Kinch. And, but basically Paul Thompson is the one who really put it on it on, on the map. And, um, and, you know, shows like the farm show uh, that went all right. over the country. And, and those were the shows that, you know, really put the place on, on the map. And it's now one of the most important theaters in the country, of course. Uh, but th- that was just the beginning. I mean, we were, Originally, it was Toronto Free Theater, which is now the Berkeley Street Theater part of Canada Stage, which was, you know, was a free theater uh, that we were doing, you know, Canadian work in. And uh, it was unusual in 1972. It started over 50 years ago. And those were, and Factory Theater Lab, which was dedicated only to original Canadian uh, work. And uh, that was happening in Winnipeg and Halifax was happening in Vancouver. And it was a very important part of what happened in Canada. And then of course we could supplement our income by the fact that John Hirsch, who was at Stratford when I was there, took over a CBC drama in 1973 mm-hmm. and opened the doors to a lot of writing and directing and acting talent in the English uh, section of CBC. So the doors opened for us to be able to do television then, new television that was really interesting, uh, more interesting than the work that was being done in feature film industry at that time in the late 70s, mid to late 70s. And uh, yeah, that was my life. Listen, uh, I'm happy to have spent this time with you. Oh, we yeah. have a family dinner. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yeah. have to go. We've spent almost an hour here. But oh, yeah, here. yeah. Oh. And thanks, thanks uh, for Thank you all so that much time. for your time. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mark, you and I have discussed how people can support this podcast. And uh, one of the ways I would like to get them to support us is by, and I think you're going to like this, by uh, purchasing one of your books. Ooh, I like that. How about your books? We're going to start with your books. We'll start with my books? Okay. And today I would like to point people in particular to Alpha Max, which is a novel about the metaverse, which is kind of in vogue these days. Yeah, and it's, it doesn't take a lot of the standard approaches that the metaverse stories do. I think it's a bit more grounded. It's funny, and it's uh, and it's witty, and it's smart, and it's entertaining. Go to recreative.ca slash support, and you can find our books there. Alpha Max by Mark A. Rayner. <laughs>